0: Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Petiprin. In each episode, we bring you in-depth conversations with Catholic authors, focusing on the most important cultural and ecclesiastical matters of our age. For the past 40 years, Ignatius Press has been the leader in Catholic publishing, with a wide variety of media, of authors and titles, old and new. We invite you to learn more about us and explore our extensive offerings at Ignatius.com. If you like what we do here on the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, follow us on social media, and please consider giving us a five-star review. We pray that this podcast will inspire you as you grow in your faith. Now, on with the show. I love you, Jesus. These were the final words on this earth of Pope Benedict XVI, on the 31st of December, 2022. I love you, Jesus. Fitting parting sentiments from a man who lived his life in total service to Christ and who bore witness to us all of the love which Christ had first shown him. Born and baptized on Holy Saturday, the 16th of April, 1927 Joseph Ratzinger was a devoted son of the Church and of Bavaria. His reputation as one of the greatest theological minds of recent times needs no rehearsal here, but influential voices are already clamoring loudly that Pope Benedict someday be named both a saint and a doctor of the Church. For eight years, Pope Benedict XVI was spiritual father to Christians the world over. And in 2013, he shocked even Vatican insiders when he resigned his ministry as Pope, exhausted from his labors. In his quiet retirement, just as in his long public life, his activity was motivated by the stirring of his heart to serve Christ and his kingdom. I love you, Jesus. Initially, the Pope Emeritus had no definite plans, except, of course, to pray and compose homilies for the small masses he celebrated for a dozen nuns at the Mater Ecclesiae Monastery in the Vatican Gardens, where he spent his final decade. But in time, Pope Benedict resumed his theological work, waiting to publish a small collection of short and medium-length writings until after his death. That collection is called What is Christianity? The Last Writings, And it is now available from Ignatius Press. Drawing together a range of reflections addressed to a wide audience, we notice in all of them Pope Benedict's typically incisive, accessible, and pastoral manner. In some of the pieces, Pope Benedict further clarifies insights he had made throughout his career about the nature of the church in relation to the world. Elsewhere, he confronts the caricature of monotheism as intolerant. In fact, he gently explains, it is progressive secularism that is intolerant, with no room for the revealed religion of Christ. Elsewhere again, Pope Benedict explores topics related to the arts and liturgy, Christian-Jewish relations, and his love for his predecessor, St. John Paul II. In two rhetorically scintillating and theologically substantial essays, he discusses the priesthood and the clerical abuse scandals. In the welcome diversity of issues explored in the book, we catch a glimpse of what was most on his mind as he neared the end of his long and fruitful life. Every page proclaims, I love you, Jesus. To discuss the book and the man, I turn to the wisdom of Father Joseph Fessio S.J., the founder of Ignatius Press. Father Fessio entered the Jesuit novitiate in 1961, and he earned both a bachelor's degree and master's degree in philosophy from Gonzaga University in Washington State, followed by an M.A. in theology in Lyon, France. He was ordained a priest on June 10, 1972, And most significantly for our conversation today, in 1975, Father Fessio received his doctorate with a thesis on the ecclesiology of Hans Urs von Balthasar at the University of Regensburg, under the supervision of none other than Joseph Ratzinger. In the English-speaking world, there are few people alive today with stronger professional and personal ties to our late departed Pope Emeritus than Joseph Fessio. And it is a pleasure to welcome him now to the Ignatius Press podcast. Father Fessio, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Fine, Andrew. How are you? I'm very well. We are speaking on the feast of uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola, which is appropriate for the Ignatius Press podcast and appropriate for you as a as a Jesuit. Um, today we are talking about uh, Pope Benedict XVI's Last Writings, uh, which have just been issued by Ignatius Press, uh, and they're called What is Christianity? The Last Writings. Now, we all remember that in 2013, Pope Benedict XVI resigned from his ministry of Pope, and he says in the preface to this little volume that he had no real plans uh, upon his retirement. He said he was exhausted. And he says in the in the preface here that although he was exhausted and had no real plans at first, he says, quote, I slowly resumed my theological work, which is, of course, a great gift to the whole world that he is such a great theologian and now leaves us some more to think about and talk about. So I wonder if you could tell our audience as we begin our discussion today, what are these writings and what is the significance of putting them out now after his death? Let me
1: start by answering the last question first. Uh, he believed that God was urging him to resign. And he gave a warning of that in an earlier interview with Peter Zaval where Peter, Peter asked him uh, when he was still pope, is it possible for a pope to resign? And immediately, Pope Benedict responded, as he always does. He's thought things through. He's always speaking very directly and clearly and transparently. He said, uh, if a pope were ever to come to the conclusion that his spiritual or mental or physical forces were inadequate to the task, he not only could resign, he must resign. And I knew when he said that that he would resign unless he died suddenly, because uh, his health has been generally good, but he's not a robust a person like John Paul II was. He's kind of a frail person. And I I realized that he would be resigning, as I say, unless uh, sudden death caught him. But uh, since he did that, and when he resigned, he knew that it could cause difficulty and confusion in the church if it looked like there were two popes. And since his whole life was spent in writing and teaching, uh, while he really... Couldn't stop doing that. It's a second nature to him. He knew he couldn't do things publicly or shouldn't do things publicly because that might cause, as I say, some ambiguity or or confusion. So he therefore uh, made a point he would not publish anything that he wrote. Now, that wasn't an absolute rule because, as you know, in this book, there are several semi public addresses. He's asked to give an invocation. Uh, You know, he's given an award, he he responds to it, of course, those things he made public. But the other things in here, where he uh, was reflecting on events in the church, uh, he thought he should write something about those, and he did, but he didn't make them public until after his death.
0: Well, and it's an interesting collection, you know, for him to talk about I'm slowly resuming my theological work. Obviously the, the writings in this volume are they really do address some very important theological concerns. And I also think that your your typical your typical reader who doesn't have much theological background would find the the selections in this book very edifying. I don't find that any of them are are way too deep. Um, you know, I, I think that that he is still very much writing as a pastor, even though, as you say, he, he was very careful in that 10 year period after his resignation until his death, not to present himself as a kind of public pastor. But why don't we get right into what, what he writes in, in this volume um, and, uh, and encourage uh, our listeners to, to get this volume and to, and to enjoy the selections that are on sure. offer. We don't
1: want to get, Deep, Andrew, because we don't we want them to purchase the book, and why do we want to do that? Not because Ignatius Press is in business to make a profit, but rather, uh, a great blessing for us is to have become the principal publisher of the writings of Bachelor Bennett in English. And uh, as you experienced, and I experienced when I read this, uh, nothing he writes is not worth reading. I mean, he, he has insights, he, he writes beautifully. He writes from the heart of the church and her great tradition. And so his life is gone now, we have his legacy, but his writings will live for a long, long time. Uh, They're always worth reading, even when he gives a little invocation for some uh, award he's received, uh, there's always something to learn from that. And by the way, I want to make a parenthetical remark. Uh, Andrew, we only met now here on this recording but your name reminds me of a book I really enjoyed when I was a young man, Le Petit Prince. Uh yes. And your name looks like it comes from that, Petit Prince. Is that a short It does. French so I'm name?
0: I am told that it does. Yes, it's a French name and I'm told that it does come from Petit Prince and okay. uh I've uh, yeah. I uh, so I'm I I'm the little prince here for you today. Um, okay. so I, I've never met anyone with the actual name Petit Prince, but, uh, it is some kind of shortened form okay. from that, but yeah, I wonder if Pope Benedict liked the little Prince. I think it's a very deep spiritual work really. It, it is. Um, well, let's uh, let, let's let's uh, get let's get into it. And as you say, we we want to we don't want to reveal everything. the The book itself is just is just a really wonderful read. But there are some broad categories that I think we can we can discuss and sure. maybe speculate a little bit about what was you know what, why Pope Benedict specifically wanted to talk about some of the things that he does in this volume. In the first chapter, now the book is divided into six chapters, but the chapters themselves are really made up of different essays that are paired or that are sort of put together in particular ways. And in the first chapter, the chapter is called World Religions and the Christian Faith. Now, we know that Pope Benedict was very interested in in this topic. He gave several, um, both before he was pope and while he was pope, gave um, all sorts of different addresses and wrote lots of different things about the relationship of Christianity to other Faiths, and he, in a kind of tidy, um, accessible way, he he re he reexamines some of those same themes that you you'll find in some of his earlier works here in the first chapter, and in particular, he is talking about um, the shall we say, kind of the the mission, the missionary work of the Christian in relation to. The fact that we live in a world with all kinds of different religions. I wonder if you could say something both about what we find here in the volume and just what you know about Pope Benedict Joseph Ratzinger's works more generally, about his 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 view of the, the missionary role of the Christian in the modern world.
1: Sure. And this is a beautiful example of how he can take a, a very important question and problem that's been kind of dogging the church now since the Vatican Council, and before even, and respond to it in a way that is clear, concise, and revealing, insightful. Uh, Let me preface this by saying that uh, although we published 40 or 50 titles by Joseph Ratzinger Pope Benedict, uh, most people aren't aware of the fact that he rarely wrote books. What he did was teach courses, Write essays, give homilies. When he did those things, he did them in a very orderly way so that they were then collected into books. Uh, the ones I can recall that he did as books, uh, reading Milestones, which was his autobiography up until the point he became Archbishop of Munich Freising in 1981, uh, the Spirit of the Liturgy, that was probably the central work, both in time of his writing and also. In terms of his interests, uh, because he was born on the vigil of Easter Sunday, a holy Saturday, four thirty in the morning, went four hours later. His mother took him to the church for the Easter vigil, which was then celebrated in the morning. Uh, so his life, both national and supernatural, began at the heart of the church's liturgy, and that marked his whole life. So that was a book he wrote over about a nine-year period, uh, specifically as a book and not simply as a collection of previously given essays or or talks. And then, of course, as Pope, he wrote his three-volume, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, Why is this essay so important? Because uh, there was a theology of mission that was fairly widespread. I don't want to make a character of it, but based on this idea that unless you are baptized, you Cannot inherit eternal life, and of course this motivated the great of Francis Xavier to go to India and baptize tens of thousands of Indians, and and complain to his former his student friends at Paris. What are you doing there in the halls of Paris? Come here and save these souls that are falling into damnation without you. Uh, well, that's not the patristic view of salvation, which was then. Uh, brought to the fore during the Patrician Revival of the 19th century, early 20th century, uh, of which Father de Lubac, who was a great mentor for Ratzinger, was a part. Uh, But it reached its fruition in the Council in Lumen Gentium, where we are told that, you know, the the fullest of faith and the means of salvation are given to those who are baptized in the Catholic faith. But that grace is not wanting, and then it lists, you know, uh, other Christians. Jews, Muslims, uh, those who seek the Lord and even atheists, that the, the, the possibility of grace is not denied them. Well, once this became clearly Catholic teaching in the conciliar documents, uh, the question arose, well, why do we, why do we go and try and bring the faith to and baptism if they're going to be saved anyway without that? That is to say, The council made it clear that you may attain eternal salvation without knowledge of the Catholic faith or baptism as a sacrament, Uh, even though these are the ordinary means of salvation. Well, what it's true that some people have said, well, if everybody can get to heaven without the church, why do we need the church? Why do we do this? Ratzinger Benedict Makes it very clear that we want to share the joy we have received. It's not simply that we want to save people from hell, which we do, but ourselves, first of all, but rather knowing Jesus, being able to serve him, responding to his invitation, having the sacraments, having his word to guide our lives uh, is a source of joy and flourishing. And therefore, the missionary impetus should not at all be dulled by the realization that people may have the possibility of salvation without baptism uh, or knowledge of the Catholic faith. Rather, uh, we should have a a deeper motivation, the motivation of love. By the way, uh, and you can interrupt me anytime, it's your show, you know, Uh, but I'm I'm an old man now, and old men tend to because they've got a lot of things to talk about, a lot of experiences, if they remember them. And I do some of them, but here's a little anecdote to, to illustrate this. Uh, after Joseph Raschkin became Archbishop of Munich Freising, he, of course, had to give up his academic career, uh, where he had many, many doctoral students, of which I was one. And we got together and talked to him and said, well, now, now that you're an archbishop, we can no longer, you know, you can no longer have graduate students. Uh, what can we do to kind of keep alive that experience we've had with you? And we came up with this idea of the Schuller Christ, the school or student circle. Uh, and so every year, uh, Ratzinger's former graduate students would meet with him for a weekend. Usually we'd pick a monastery somewhere uh, and we'd have meals together, we'd have mass together, we'd have seminars together. And uh, at that time, one of my former Schuler christ colleagues was Father Christoph Schoenborn, who later became uh, Archbishop Cardinal of Vienna in Austria. And on one of these Schuler christ meetings, must have been 30, 40 years ago, uh, the reading, the gospel reading, was on the workers at got paid uh, after coming at the 11th hour, got paid the same amount as the ones who came and bore the heat of the day's work. And that homily, as all these homilies, was very striking. I never forgot it. And every time I would hear that passage, it would recall to me that beautiful homily he gave. Well, some 20 to 30 years after that moment, after Schoenborn became Cardinal, he was invited by a mutual friend of ours, Judge Bill Clark, uh, who later became uh, Reagan's, uh, what was it, Uh, the uh, Defense, not Defense Department, but uh, sort of like a Chief of Staff in in DC, and also became uh, Secretary for the Interior. Anyway, Judge Bill Clark has a little chapel uh, in near Paso Robles, California, And he invited Colonel Schoenborn to visit and say Mass, and I was there too. So we're at this little chapel. Uh, Colonel Schoenborn reads the gospel, and it's that gospel of the 11th hour. And right away, of course, I'm thinking of Bratzinger's homily on that gospel. And so Colonel Schoenborn begins his homily by saying, many years ago, Joseph Bratzinger gave a homily on this gospel. He remembered it too. And he recounted, what was it? Now, I can't say it as beautifully as Shunborn did and not as beautifully as Ratzinger did originally, but basically it's this, and it relates to this text we're talking about. Basically, it's that uh, those who have worked the entire day in the heat of the day at the side of the Lord should not feel any regret or envy at those who come at the last hour and get paid the same. Why not? Because we've had the blessing, the privilege, the joy of being with the Lord all day, sharing His sufferings, sharing His joys, working with Him, contributing to His work, and therefore we should not feel sad or or deprived if those who come later and have not worked as hard as we have are given the same, you know, the same amount of recompense. Anyway, it was a beautiful thought uh, which struck me and struck Colonel Shinmore and. Uh, I live with it yet, but that is related to this uh, because one can say, Well, why should I, you know, strive to keep the commandments and uh, go to church every Sunday at least and go to confession at least once a year and, uh, you know, receive baptism and confirmation and be married in the church and trying to follow the rules? Why should I do all that when these people are living off in the pagan lands? They can be saved too. Well, Being a Christian, being a Catholic, is not a burden. It's a joy that the God, by the way, in the creed, credo in Deum Omnipotentum, I believe in God Almighty. Well, the God who created this universe, who keeps in mind every molecule, every atom, every quark, every electron, uh, every boson, everything, every moment, without whose knowledge we would fall back into nothingness, that he should come for us, suffer for us, die for us, gather us together as a church. Uh, What a joy that is. And of course, that should be the fundamental impetus for missionary activity, not that we're going to save you from hell, even though that's a legitimate motivation. And I've been a teacher. I know that if you want students to study, you don't simply give them encouragement to have the joy of learning. You say there'll be a test on Thursday. Better prepare, mm-hmm. and that gets more results usually than relying on their goodwill.
0: Yeah. Uh, on that note, and what a what a marvelous story you've shared. I I, I find that just really encouraging. Your your story uh, of hearing uh, the future pope, I guess, at that time uh, preach on that gospel passage in in this In this essay, and we 'll use this to transition to the next chapter um, to the point that you that you 've made already very well, I just want to highlight the something that jumped out to me in in pope benedict 's reflection on um, on the need for continuing a, a continuing sort of missionary posture for the church is this invitation into what he calls the whole greatness of our existence to the encounter with the living God, and that reminded me a lot of the way. The church talks about itself in *Lumen Gentium*. It's the the way that we see it presented in the Catechism, in the writings of, of of de Lubac and others, and and in Ratzinger's work itself. And that's a vision that I found, as someone who's come into the Catholic Church from outside, to be very attractive. You know, the, this invitation into this fullness of existence and this great mystery. Um. And and that maybe is is a good transition. And you can say more about that too. I'd love love to hear more of your thoughts on that, Father Fessio. But there are a couple of really lovely little essays here in the next chapter, in chapter two, about uh liturgy. And, you know, the liturgy is is in a sense the place where we have that fundamental experience of that of that fullness, of that greatness, of that mystery. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about what Pope Benedict has to say about the liturgy here in these really just kind of very short little reflections, but very beautiful, that are included in this volume.
1: Yes, these are reflections which you'll find the roots of them in his really small masterpiece called The Spirit of the Liturgy. Uh, And I'll tell you a bit about the origin of that. Uh, As I mentioned, he was born in the liturgical center of the church's life, And it's always been important to him. And As a young child, uh, he was fascinated by what's called in Germany, the Schott. S-C-H-O-T-T. What is the Schott? Well, Germans are very organized, as we know. And uh, although their organization seems to be kind of collapsing now with the synodal way. However, um, the, the German parishes for decades and decades all had you know, what we'd call a worship aid, I guess, uh, uh, kind of a a missile, a a pew missile uh, that had in it the prayers of the mass. It had a lot of the psalms with the songs. It had the German hymns. uh, And that's one reason, at least when I was there, wherever you would go to a German parish, the singing was, was hearty. I mean, everybody sang and they sang beautifully and they sang loudly. And uh, they really participated in the mass with, through their singing, and that was because of this. Shot, everybody had a single source of uh, where they came to with their their common prayers, their common hymns, and that was a book that that really moved him and uh, formed him. So his life has always been a liturgical life. Well, you know, we began Ignatius Press in 1978 with a specific purpose. Of publishing in English the writings of these European authors, Ratzinger, Balthasar, de Lubac, Boyer, von Speyer, those are the primary ones, uh, and, of course, began publishing Ratzinger's works. Uh, and in the 80s, when a lot of the Turkic confusion Confusion uh, was dominant in the United States and elsewhere, I began to reflect on the liturgy, read, do some more reading on it, form my own ideas on it, uh, especially this idea of the reform or the reform its another long story, but uh, the idea that the council really brought to fruition the great liturgical movement that had taken place over a century before, for a whole century. Uh, but the implementation, you know, really uh, betrayed what the council did and what we need now is a reform of the reform. That is to say, to take what the council actually said, uh, to look at the reform that that ensued, and then reform that reform to be more consistent with what the council meant. And that's something which Ratchet himself was uh, very much uh, interested in. And so uh, we, this is 1990 now, and by 1989, uh, I was part of a group of four priests, Father Schoenborn, who became Cardinal Schoenborn, Father Ouellette, who became Cardinal Ouellette, Father Survey, and myself, who with Carl Ratzinger, uh, established the Casa Balthasar, a house of formation and discernment in Rome, which is still active to this day with Father Survey. Well, um, as it turned out, we had a meeting every, every February, so I'd go to Rome for four or five days in February. And, of course, uh, Carl Ratzinger would join us for... An afternoon and an evening, and we'd have a meal together and we'd have recreation together. We'd always ask him what's going on at the, at the CDF because he was a prefect of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Divine Worship excuse me, for a Doctrine of the Faith. And uh, around 1990, he said, Well, I'm working on a book. And of course, I'm a publisher. I said, Well, what book is that? He said, I want to write a book on the liturgy. And so I was very excited about that. And every year thereafter, I'd ask him, How's it going? He said, well, it's taking time. I'm very busy, but I'm, I'm making progress. So it was in 1995 that uh, I heard a talk in Colorado Springs by Father Brian Harrison, OS, Ordo Order of Wisdom. And he's the one that introduced the idea of the reform of the reform. I sent his talk to Ratzinger in 1995. Ratzinger wrote back and said, yes, I agree with him wholeheartedly. This is what we need. And so uh, I began to celebrate liturgy myself in a way that was consistent with this idea, essentially being the novus ordo uh, with taking all the options which are more traditional, like facing east and using Latin for the ordinary and so on. And uh, year after year, I'd asked Ratzinger, well, how's this book coming? He'd say, Fine. Finally, in 1999, in August 1999, I get the manuscript. Ein in das in den Geist der Liturgie. Introduction to the Spirit of Liturgy, And I was a little bit nervous about reading this because uh, I developed my own ideas of liturgy now over the last four or five years. And I didn't want to find myself in contradiction to the person I thought was the master of liturgical knowledge and practice. But I read, I started reading this book in German. I'm telling you, I still remember, Andrew. I got it from my chair. I leapt up. Victory sign! I said, "This is phenomenal." Everything I've been thinking of and trying to do, he's got in here. But he said it better. He's got more, more, you know, more backing for it. More, more evidence for his positions. So I really thought that was that was wonderful. And I still think that is the greatest book ever written on the liturgy by a man who I believe will become not only a saint but a doctor and a father in the modern church. So back to this. There's These two little sections here, two of uh, music and liturgy and theology of liturgy. because music was always important because he wasn't just a theologian, he was a man of culture, he played the piano, yet he, he he loved Christian art and, and secular art that was good art. Uh, so here we have a little excerpt, if you will, a little jewel from that great crown, which I consider his larger book, The Spirit of the Liturgy. I'm not sure if I answered your question, Andrew, but I certainly, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I avoided it. Well, if I did, if I didn't answer it,
0: I think the richness you provide it, it in, you know, fleshing out. The, the the man and his wider his wider thought is so valuable for us here. I would just love to 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 point out one beautiful line from sure. one of the two essays uh, from his from the essay on music and liturgy. He says, "For me, or he says, music for me is proof of the truth of Christianity." Uh, that just really bowled me over. You know, um, it, it, it's it, it. You can do all kinds of things with that line, but uh, what a beautiful sentiment from a man who, as you say. Was you know just the great, just such a great mind, and 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 I hope right along with you that he will indeed be a doctor of the church. He he definitely deserves it in my book, and, and also a musician and a man of culture and someone for whom um this this like thick experience. I don't know how else to put it. That maybe is a too a little bit too jargony, but the experience of beauty uh, was in a sense a kind of evangelism to the world itself um and I wonder- he lived
1: he lived a, a beautiful life i would say in this sense that uh, uh his writings do reveal who he is as a person which was a noble gentle courteous deep thinker you know who uh who just shared all his own wisdom uh out of great love for the good and love for others it's just a, i mean he's I don't think everybody who's a pope should become a saint automatically, uh, even in our own time. But he is one of the many people that I have lived with and been pleased to know that, blessed to know that. I would say certainly has lived a holy life and a beautiful life and is worthy of canonization and
0: emulation. All of that certainly comes through in, in the, the selections in this volume, too, Father Fessio. Um, let's transition now to, um, and maybe just spend a minute or two, because there's, there's so much to get to, but he, there's a significant portion of this collection of last writings dedicated to the, the Jewish-Christian dialogue. I wonder, what was the impetus for Pope Benedict to write about that in these last years of his life?
1: Well, he had a correspondence with this Jewish rabbi from Vienna. Uh, and, of course, Ratzinger Benedict was deeply, deeply scriptural. And You can't be scriptural without having a deep love for the Jewish people who are elder brothers in the faith and whose writings, you know, the, in the Old Testament are the source of our gospel. Writing. I mean, the New Testament can be viewed simply as an interpretation of the Old, interpreted by Christ, who brings the fulfillment of all the promises. And reveals their deepest meaning. So, of course, uh, Joseph Ratzinger has a deep love for the Jewish people, and he was in Germany during the terrible Hitler period. Uh, his family was hostile to Hitler. I had to move one or, once or twice to avoid, uh, you know, being under the thumb of Hitler and uh, Hitler's administration. Uh, and so he had a great compassion for the Jews, too, because he saw what had happened to them so it's it's been a thread throughout his life and in this case uh there was this rabbi uh then you know entering a dialogue with him, and of course he responded
0: yeah and um it it really is a fascinating exchange. We'll leave it to our readers to um to explore that for themselves, but it really highlights something that you've you've already brought up, which is just the the care and the kindness and the wisdom that's imparted in Pope Benedict's words. I mean, the way that he exchanges ideas with this prominent rabbi from Vienna is really something to behold. And I would encourage everyone to check that out. I, I have to say, as a former Protestant as well, I did enjoy that Pope Benedict makes a, takes a few shots at Luther in <laughs> in, in the sections yeah. about Judaism. I mean, basically, yeah. I think rightly attributes. To Luther, a kind of Marcionism in his reading of scripture, which has had disastrous repercussions down through the centuries with regard to Christian Jewish relations. So I was grateful for that. That's right. And
1: again, Ratchinger is always
0: a person with to, to see the positive
1: everywhere. But there was a in one of these Sure Christ meetings, the, the topic was ecumenism, and uh, one of his graduate students, a colleague of mine. Uh, professor Fervian was a great enthusiast for humanism. And so we had invited, I think, an Evangelical, which in evangelical in Germany is Lutheran, uh, a person to make a presentation to our seminar, which he did. And uh, I'll never forget we had a couple of hours of seminar. And was beautiful at this. He would he'd rarely say anything uh, until the end. He'd always encourage others to speak uh and, and express their views and Enter into kind of dialogue and even argumentation sometimes. But anyway, at the end of this wonderful session, uh Professor Fervine was all at the e- e- saying, I think, I-, I think now the time has come, Professor Ratcher I-, I think I think we can have a reunion of the Catholic Church and the Evangelical Church." And Rashir said, Yeah, ja, then es that is to say, oh yes, if there were a Lutheran church, yes. meaning who represents the church? There, there is no unity. Uni, there's no for, source of unity there, so it's just a he had a great sense of humor too. Uh,
0: yeah. Well, and in all seriousness, that's a great transition to one of the one of the major pieces in this volume, which is his essay on the Catholic priesthood, which oh, yes. in so many ways, you know, really impinges on that very question, the nature of authority, which uh, you know, I was a major dilemma for me, uh, and and a major attraction to the Catholic Church. Of course, I wonder if you could now this essay, by the way, this the the selection on the Catholic priesthood had appeared in another form before it was in this volume. It came out in Cardinal Seurat's book, um, which I believe Ignatius Press published in 2020. Right. Um, but this is an expanded and revised version of that same essay. I wonder if you could just talk to us about this essay and what are kind of the the big themes and the implications? What, what, what is the purpose, do you think, in, in publishing this particular um, th- uh, line of thinking about the priesthood now at the end of his life?
1: Well, this is... One, which was the result of contemporary concern, uh, which was the Amazon Synod, uh, in which it was feared that the Pope was going to relax the church's position on priestly celibacy. Parenthetically, you often heard it said, hear it said that, well, you know, celibacy is a discipline, it's not a doctrine. That is a too facile distinction because it is a discipline which is rooted in apostolic tradition from the very beginnings. We have a book on that called The Apostolic Origin of Priestly Celibacy. Uh, But the fact that Jesus Christ himself is the high priest in whom all Catholic priests participate, and he lived a life of celibacy that he might give himself entirely to his one bride, which is the church, that's not mere discipline. Nor is it something imposed later on in Jewish history, that has been the apostolic tradition from the time of Christ. Didn't come in the 7th century, didn't come in the 12th century, it was there from the beginning. With with, uh, violations, of course, like we still have today, but the important thing to remember is that from the very beginning there were married priests, but that was because they were married before they were ordained and in order to be ordained, they and their wives had agreed to live as brother and sister after ordination. That was, and has been, and is the Catholic tradition. So that was always being endangered in our modern time, which is, which is so confused by sexuality. And Ratzinger and his very close friend Carl Robert Seurat, saw that this was again being brought up for discussion, and they wanted to make a contribution. Now Carl Seurat, I say Sarah, S-A-R-I-H. People often say "Sarah," which is okay in English, but he's actually from a French-speaking, uh, you know, area called Guinea. And in France, as you would know, uh, Monsieur petitprin right? That the accent is always on the last syllable, so it's 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 cardinal. "Sarah." Rhymes with "Hurrah." That's how you remember it. Uh, "Sarah" came to Pope Benedict, who had already been resigned, and said we must do something, and Benedict, of course, enthusiastically agreed, and so they together wrote this book called From the Depths of Our Hearts. That is, it's a book with two authors, Benedict and Seurat. Uh, And uh, it caused some stir, uh, which is fine with me because it didn't just increase sales, but it increased awareness and it is a beautiful, beautiful, uh, positive presentation of the importance of priestly celibacy in the Catholic Church. Uh, and so then, once the book had come out, it had been done rather in a hurry. Uh, Benedict refined, revised. There aren't any major changes, but but there are some there. Uh, so this is one of the great gifts of... Uh, Ratzinger Benedict of the Church. And by the way, we have a manuscript here from Carl Sra, titled, He Gave Us So Much. And it's a tribute to uh, Ratzinger Benedict by Carl Sera.
0: Oh, how wonderful. I I learned a lot from this particular essay in the book about about the Catholic priesthood, about about the nature of authority in the church. And so I, I highly recommend that to, to everyone when they pick up this volume to be sure to really dig into that one. Likewise, the next essay, uh, The Meaning of Communion, which again, we don't necessarily need to dig deep into that one unless you'd like to, Father. But I think there again, you see some of the same stuff that we've talked about already, you know, the the Vatican II emphasis on sort of the nature of reality, what the church is, you know, the idea of, you know, um, thinking in terms of relation rather than substance. And, you know, some of this sounds a little bit highfalutin theology, but it really is very accessible stuff that is, is, uh, I think, we can all learn a lot from engaging with that. Um, So, yeah, would you like to say anything about that?
1: It's a very... Very, very important theological concept, this idea of communio. And you may know, Andrew, that after the council, there were several of the great theologians at the time who wanted to perpetuate the spirit and the teaching of the council and draw out its conclusions. And they formed a journal called Concilium. Uh, and it was Ratzinger, de Lubach, Balthazar, Bouillet. And Kung, Rahner, and Skildebeks. Well, it soon became obvious that Kung, Rahner, and Skillebex were were departing from what the others thought was the true meaning of the council. And so they resigned from the board and they founded a journal called Communio. And they represent what is called Communio theology. What is Communio theology? Communio theology is that theology which Uh, began with the resourcement movement, that is, going back to the sources. Scripture is a primary source, of course, but not neglecting the patristic sources, the early medieval sources, uh, which Thomas himself was a great synthesizer of. And integrating into that the uh, findings and and the developments after the Middle Ages, such as uh, German philosophy and idealistic philosophy and so on, uh, all these things have to be brought together in an intellectual communion that is bringing the good out of all these different perspectives, but also a social, personal, real communion of brothers and sisters in Christ. So uh, that theology is, uh, you know, been being carried on now by the so-called communio theologians and journals such as Journal comunio and. That's why this essay is so important, and in particular, uh, it is a not a reaction to but a response to a uh, a misconception that our Christianity is primarily between each of us individually and Jesus and through mm-hmm. Jesus to the Father. The me and Jesus spiritual. Now, there's a truth to that. Only we have responsibility for. Choosing life over, excuse me, choosing salvation over damnation. And yet, we don't do that as really an I, but as part of a we, as he will say, we're part of this community. Uh, And that has implications for all sorts of things, including uh, whether we can pray for the salvation of all. Big controversial thing. Mm -hmm. Balthazar is, is considered to be a heretic because he says we can hope for the salvation of all. But of course, Ratzinger and Jean Paul II, Saint Jean Paul II, happened to agree with Balthasar on this. But again, here we have, in his beautiful, short, succinct way, kind of the last departing words of this great pope and theologian, on this topic, Communio.
0: It, it is a really illuminating little, little chapter that uh, draws out those themes that are part of this much larger story that you've begun to tell us, which I, I'm very grateful for this little essay that he's included at the end of his life, that this idea of communio that he's been working on for decade after decade is still something that he really wants to talk to, <coughs> talk to the world about at the end of his life. Um, in the few minutes that remain, Father, you know, th- this, this is a little book and it's very accessible, but necessarily we have to leave out a lot of important stuff and, and just therefore encourage our listeners to buy it and read it. But I do want to touch on. At least,
1: buy, at least buy it.
0: At least buy it. Yeah. I mean, boy, I sure no, have a I lot of books read that I've too. bought.
1: We want people to read these things. They're nourishing.
0: I think that this is a very readable book i I, I do I think this isn 't going to be one that anyone 's going to want to leave on the shelf and uh, before you know before we run out of time, I really want to at least touch briefly on the one of the longer pieces in the book, which is called The Church and the Scandal of Sexual Abuse. Now, this also was a piece that had that that some people had read that that had seen the Light of day before it was translated into English and included in this volume, and also kind of like the priesthood essay. Um, created a little bit of controversy, and you know, to some degree, it's. Um, I think it's a, a really important piece, and um, it, but I can also understand why it created some controversy because, of course, what the Pope does to some degree is connect the sexual revolution with the child, the the scandal of sexual abuse, and various other problems in the church. So I wonder if you could just comment on that a little bit and tell us where you know what the significance of this piece is.
1: Surely. And it's very significant. Uh, again, it's a, what we would call an, an occasional piece in the sense it was occasioned by a reflection on the abuse crisis and what its effects have been in the church. But I remember very distinctly in 2002 uh, I was driving from San Francisco to San Jose to give a talk at a Human Life International Conference put in by Father Paul Marks. Uh, and the News on the radio was the Boston Globe had exposed sex abuse uh, in the seminaries uh, in Boston area, and I began to weep for joy because I had been complaining for literally years about what had happened in the seminaries to moral theology, and how this was the root of these evils in the church that were not being uh, faced up to by church authorities. And I said, "Well, finally." The Boston Globe has no love for the church. In fact, it's hostile to the church. But now it's in the open. We can't avoid it. Uh, And what Ratzinger does in this essay, and he said it before elsewhere, uh, but he gathers it together all in one place here, is that the origin of this priestly abuse crisis lies in the moral confusion, the confusion of moral theology after Humanae Vitae, in which the seminaries uh, do not accept these, for the large part, do not accept the teaching of Mane Vitae, which means that sexual intimacy and sexual uh, fertility are in ineluctably and uh, unbreakably linked. Once you say they can be broken, and that uh, sexual intimacy and sexual pleasure do not need to be connected with openness to life, then that means... There's nothing wrong with homosexuality, with bestiality, with masturbation, uh, with same-sex marriage. All these things follow from that. And what happened was, the poison pill was swallowed by liberal theologians in the seminaries, and the, it was the priests of those seminaries which went on to be abusers. So he he points to the the, the real origin of the sexual abuse crisis was the loss of the integrity of moral theology in our seminaries and in our theologians and our colleges and universities. And I think he's exactly right. Is it controversial? Maybe it is, but it's true.
0: Yeah. And I would just note too, that he also connects the the idea of the scandal of sexual abuse to this much larger question that is also something that the sexual revolution uh, sort of falls under the rubric of a society that has forgotten God, uh, and you know I think that exactly you know it's exactly. it's all of a piece. You know, it's not just picking on something going on in the culture, but it is always pushing all the way up to these big theological concerns.
1: That's right. Or all the way down, you might say. Because he right. he was, if you want to give him a category, he's a fundamental theologian. He always goes down to the roots of things. In fact, that's one w- way he is able to d- dialogue with people is that he tries to find some common ground as deep down mm-hmm. as he can get it and then draw up the conclusions. For example, in his first encyclical on, on love, God is love, you know, he's not just quoting previous popes. He's quoting Nietzsche. You know, he's quoting Luther. He's quoting Plato. He's quoting Aristotle. He's, he's, he's talking about Eros. So that, that's that's what the beautiful uh, characteristic of his thought, going down to the roots of things. And you're exactly right. It wasn't just the, the confusion of moral theology. Beneath that, deeper, was the loss of faith in God.
0: Right. Well, and on that note, we'll have to... Uh, uh call it quits for the day the book is what is christianity the last writings by our late holy father pope benedict XVI. available now wherever you get your books from ignatius press father fessio you are the founder of ignatius press and it has been my great my great pleasure to talk to you today thank you very much thank
1: you mon petit prince <laughs> goodbye good bless you
0: this episode has been brought to you by ignatius press please visit us at ignatius.com Follow us on social media and be sure to rate and review this podcast. Until next time, I'm Andrew Pettiprint. God bless.